It's 2020, a new year, a new decade, an opportunity to look back at the year that was and to look at the investment opportunities that lie ahead. Will China trade tensions persist? Who will win the U.S. election? And will stock markets continue to hit new highs? On this episode of The Bid, we'll answer those questions with Mike Pyle, BlackRock's global chief investment strategist. We'll walk through the three themes that he sees shaping markets in the year ahead and talk about his New Year's resolutions for 2020. I'm your host, Oscar Polito. We hope you enjoy. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on The Bid. Awesome to be here. Thanks for having me, Oscar. So, Mike, it's the year 2020, which sounds very energizing to say. and A new decade. It is. It According to some. Well, it also suggests to me that we're supposed to have perfect vision of where the markets are headed. Why don't we start by reflecting on last year versus this year? What were your main takeaways from 2019, and what do you see ahead in 2020? Yeah, I think even getting perfect vision on the past is sometimes challenge enough, so... 2019 was a year that was really characterized by two big drivers. First, saw this big uptick in geopolitical risk, principally around the U.S.-China trade tensions. And secondly, this very unusual, very powerful late cycle pivot from the global central banks, most particularly the Fed, towards a much more dovish posture. And basically, those two things were in tug of war with one another through the year. You know, at the end of the day, it looks to us as if the central banks won out. They preserved the expansion. They kept the recovery intact. And that basically drove a lot of what we saw in financial markets as well, with obviously both stocks and bonds up on the year. But I think as we move into 2020, what's really noteworthy is both of those things that really dominated 2019 both look to be kind of receding into the rearview mirror in 2020. And so something is going to have to pick up the baton as we go into the new year. We think on balance that thing is going to be growth, that even if we're not going to see a big acceleration from here, that this kind of edging higher back towards trend for the globe, for the U.S., is really going to be enough to push global stock markets somewhat higher and cause credit and other risk assets to have a decent year as well. So you mentioned geopolitical risk. You couldn't escape that in the headlines in 2019. And then you mentioned this dovish posture, this pivot, which effectively was central banks, particularly the Federal Reserve, cutting interest rates last year. And then that helped stock markets, that helped bond markets as well. If you had to sum up the outlook in a few sentences, what would you say about 2020? 2020 is likely to be a year where growth edges higher globally, where what leads growth globally are places like manufacturing and trade that were beaten down in 2019. That has two implications for portfolios. The first is that we think that against a backdrop of the expansion continuing, against a backdrop of market prices, valuations looking basically reasonable, we think stocks and credit are likely to be modestly rewarded over the course of 2020. Secondly, we think that some of the more cyclical parts of the global market, you know, places like Japan and emerging markets, 
that have particular upside exposure to manufacturing and trade, we think that those have more upside than some of the more defensive parts of the market that have been rewarded in the past couple of years. So bottom line is we like a modest tilt into stocks and credit. And within that, see some of these cyclical asset classes that, again, kind of have higher exposure to trade and manufacturing as having some upside that hasn't been apparent in a while. You mentioned manufacturing rebounding. That sector had a very tough 2019. So what is it that would cause it to have a better 2020? I think partly it can have a better 2020 in part because it had such a bad 2019. But more specifically, if we looked at what caused that bad year for global manufacturing, global trade in 2019, you know, it really is attributable to a significant extent to the frictions and instability that we saw in the world's largest trade relationship between the U.S. and China. Looking out across 2020 on the back of the phase one trade deal that got struck, kind of see that relationship is going more or less sideways across the course of 2020. That should take a real pressure off of global manufacturing and trade going into 2020 in ways that could allow it to bounce back modestly but meaningfully off of the lows that we're seeing here in 2019. So as we go into 2020, I know that many times when BlackRock talks about the outlook, we talk about themes. And there's typically three of them, as there is for 2020. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what the three themes are for this particular year? Absolutely. So the three things that we're talking about in terms of the big drivers of 2020 are first what we call policy pause. And that's in effect saying that the two big things we saw drive markets and economics last year, as we were just talking about, are more likely than not to recede into the background in 2020. That's true of the trade instability that we saw, not that there won't be bouts of turbulence here and there. Also, central banks. I mean, we see them as well kind of basically being on hold throughout the year, the Fed at the top of that list. I mean, I think listening to Chairman Powell, he made very clear the Fed's pretty comfortable with where they're at and the barriers to additional cuts from here are pretty high. The second big theme is if policy is not going to be driving 2020 and economics and markets, what is? And I think what we expect to see is a bit of a handoff from policy to growth. And not that we're going to see a big runaway year of global growth, but I do think that 2019 was a year where we saw growth slow sequentially quarter over quarter on a global basis. And 2020 is a year where we expect to see growth bottom and then sequentially pick up across the course of the year. And then lastly, you know, the last theme is around rethinking resilience. At the top of the list, you know, thinking about the way in which the world could be quite different 10, 15, 20 years into the future around climate and sustainability risks, making sure that portfolios are increasingly reflective of and resilient to those risks. That also means resilience in a kind of more traditional sense, being focused on finding places for our portfolios to stand up to the kind of different scenarios that could unfold. I mean, one thing that we're thinking about, for example, is while we don't anticipate that inflation is going to move much higher from here, it's also the case where 
you know, the conditions are right for there maybe to be an upside surprise. And given what inflation can do to stock bond correlations, to the balance of portfolios, we think they need to be resilient to that outcome. So you've mentioned a lot there. I want to go back to, you mentioned policy pause and growth edging higher. Now, what feels like a long time ago, I remember taking a few classes in economics. And what we learned was that if the central bank cut interest rates, there tended to be a lagged impact on the economy. And Therefore, is what the Fed did in 2019, is the reason you see growth picking up in 2020 a function of those interest rate cuts starting to make their way into the real economy and thus giving the economy a bit of that boost that it sounds like you're talking about? That's exactly right. I would say, first, we have begun to see some of that monetary stimulus flow through the economy. I think one of the places that was strongest in the U.S. economy in late 2019 was the housing sector, for example, both around activity and sales. And that's exactly where you'd expect to see monetary stimulus show up first. But I think one of the things that we're particularly taken by when we look at the data is traditionally our measure of financial conditions. Usually that index moves pretty closely with changes in global growth, global activity. In 2019, we saw a pretty big divergence open up between those two things, the amount of activity that would be forecast by the level of financial conditions and the actual activity that we observed in the economy. We think that that divergence was really an overhang from the geopolitical and trade tensions that we saw. And as that overhang dissipates, you know, we expect those financial conditions to flow through and allow growth to pick back up closer to what would be forecast by these financial conditions. Financial conditions is a variety of different indicators that you look at. It's not just one, for example. Exactly. I mean, it's basically things like interest rates, credit availability, stock market levels, the dollar, basically an amalgam of indicators that taken together suggest how available credit and a sense of wealth is within the overall economy. And so we've talked about the Fed having cut rates. In Europe and in Japan, interest rates are already at levels that I think no one in the financial industry expected to see in their lifetime. So it doesn't feel like central banks have much more room to cut interest rates if they needed to. So what other levers do central banks have to pull if for some reason we run into some difficulties in 2020? Yeah, I mean, I think that what you point to is one of the reasons why we think finding resilience is increasingly hard for portfolios outside of the United States and other developed markets. The distance between the effective lower bound and where interest rates are now in Europe and Japan is, by historic standards, very, very, very low. And that means there's just a whole lot less room for interest rates to move lower, for bonds to rally in the face of a growth shock or an economic shock of some kind. And that means in Europe and Japan, bonds are just to a much lesser extent than has historically been the case, kind of providing that basic cushion and stabilization in portfolios. So what you're saying is if there's a event of volatility in the market, government bonds historically provided some diversification in your portfolio, but it's unclear how much they can provide just given the low level of interest rate that you're starting from in the first place. Yeah. And again, that's true in Europe and Japan. That's much, much, much less true in the United States where there's still a fair amount of cushion in terms of where kind of interest rates are. But in Europe and Japan, I think you're exactly right that this then asks a set of questions about, okay, in the face of 
economic or financial risk? How would policymakers, central bankers in particular, respond? The types of tools that are going to have to be reached for in the future probably aren't just in the hands of central banks and really need to look to places like fiscal policy to provide an overall boost to aggregate demand that's coordinated with additional monetary policy. And what does fiscal policy mean? Does that just mean tax cuts? Or is that a broader term that could mean a number of other different actions that governments could take? Yeah, I think what it means is the net contribution of resources to the aggregate demand and economy from changes in either tax policy or spending policy. You know, I think, for example, in Europe right now, you hear a lot of talk about a big effort around investments in green infrastructure. I think there's a lot of talk about that, though a little less far along in the United States. Certainly the most recent example we've seen of a significant demand-side stimulus was the tax cut bill in the United States back in 2017. But I think it's just as likely moving ahead that additional stimulus doesn't take the form of tax cuts necessarily, but really does take the form of these types of investments in green energy, green infrastructure, what have you, going back to the point around climate and sustainability. We were talking about fiscal policy. It turns out you worked in Washington, D.C. in your prior life. And so you may have heard there's a presidential election this year. I don't know if you have read the headlines. I've been told. I'm not going to ask you who you think will win the election. But what I would want to ask you is, can you frame what are the issues that investors should think about if there's a Democratic-led White House versus a Republican-led White House? Yeah, so I would say— that a couple of things to bear in mind are, first, investing on the back of a belief about what's going to happen politically is a pretty dangerous game to get into. Sometimes even on the day of elections, expectations are thwarted. And I'd say secondly, and we saw this in 2016 as well, forecasting how assets are going to move on the back of a particular outcome is also very difficult. With respect to the election itself and how that might play out for investors, I guess I would make just a couple of observations. You know, one, I do think that we think that it is going to be a headwind for U.S. risk assets in particular, stocks and credit in 2020, largely because the range of outcomes out there is really high. We have President Trump running for re-election, I think will largely be running on a very similar platform to what he ran on in 2016, which for economic purposes likely means a significant ratcheting higher of trade pressures if he were to be re-elected. And on the Democratic side, I think we're seeing a set of very ambitious proposals across a number of different dimensions of economic policy, an ambition of the scale that we probably haven't seen since the 1960s or 1970s. One place that I would point to, precisely because it's one of these few places that we're seeing some overlap between Democrats and Republicans, is that it does seem as if the direction of travel on regulation of technology and the large technology firms is going to move in a meaningfully more aggressive direction, regardless of who's in charge. That could take the form of antitrust or privacy or tax or a number of other things. But I do think that for these handful of large firms that have been very important drivers of U.S. equity markets, the direction of travel on regulation looks to be a lot tougher, regardless of who's in Washington, but perhaps with a bit more energy on the Democratic side. And on that last point, technology has become a major component of U.S. stock markets, just given how well that sector's done in recent years. So 
if I look at the outlook, actually the uncertainty around the election is what has caused your view to become a bit more neutral on U.S. equities, in particular U.S. stocks, and has become a little bit more favorable towards more cyclical, what I'll call assets, right? So things like emerging markets or things like Japan. Yeah, I think that's basically right. I mean, I would say our outlook for the U.S. isn't negative. We think that global equities writ large are going to have a positive year in 2020. We think that U.S. equities are probably going to perform basically in line with global equities. So it's not a forecast that's going to be a bad year for U.S. stocks. But I think what it is to say is after a number of years in which we've seen the U.S. outperform versus the rest of the world, this looks to be a year where it's kind of going to be more in line. And I think you've exactly pointed to the reasons why we think that's so. You mentioned earlier inflation and this possibility of inflation moving higher, which I feel like all around us, it feels like uh, prices are going down. We can get things for cheaper than we used to, whether it's clothes or the way we buy media, you know, our cable. So what do you mean by the risk of inflation moving higher? Is it that you think it'll move significantly higher or just from a relatively low base, we could start to see some inflationary pressure? Yeah, I think much more the latter. You know, I think our base case is for inflation to remain kind of broadly subdued across 2020, tick a little bit higher towards trend. I think that's largely a function of the fact that we really are now seeing some wage growth flow through to the economy, given where labor markets are and where the cycle is. And then I'd say lastly, and I think potentially most importantly, but something that is underemphasized in the broader kind of market narrative is some of the supply side dynamics around the protectionism that we've seen to date and where we think the trade war between the U.S. and China could go down the road. You know, the unwinding of global supply chains, the decoupling between the two biggest economies in the world, that sort of introduces some inefficiencies into the global economy that can ultimately be reflected in lower productivity, lower growth, but also somewhat higher inflation. And so I think, you know, our view again is not that we're going to run away into a much different world, but just we, in the base case, could see inflation tick back towards trend. And in a risk case, which is low probability but higher impact, see it sort of go somewhat beyond that. And it's high impact precisely because kind of any move in the inflation complex challenges the negative stock bond correlation, which is just such a cornerstone of multi-asset investing. And again, this point that we were raising earlier about bonds offsetting or cushioning equity market volatility. Basically, if inflation did in this low probability scenario that you outline, surprise to the upside, you could have a scenario where stocks and bonds are both suffering at the same time. Doesn't happen often, but certainly one of the things that we would just have to think about. That's absolutely right. And I think the important sort of takeaway for us is, you know, things like treasury inflation protected securities are a really nice asset class to be building an allocation to alongside nominal treasuries, you know, precisely because they're pretty attractively priced right now. And in a sense, they're doubly resilient, that if you see the types of growth slowdowns or geopolitical shocks that allow nominal treasuries to rally and cushion portfolios, those same shocks cause tips to rally, a little less so, but they still rally and provide cushion to portfolios. But with upside inflation surprises, you don't get any real resilience out of nominal treasuries, but you do get definitionally that resilience out of tips. 
Let me ask you about China, because you talked about the two largest economies in the world being the U.S. and China. China has seen its growth rate actually come down over many years. What was once a 10 or 11 or 12 percent growth rate for that economy is now more in the mid-single digits. Should we be concerned about that, or was that sort of a natural progression of where that economy was headed? Yeah, I mean, I would say China is on a natural trajectory towards slower, but I think more hopefully higher quality growth. This is certainly the direction of travel that the Chinese leadership wants to take that economy in the direction of. And what I think that's likely to mean in 2020 is that, you know, we see stable growth out of China, a continuation of the slow deceleration trend. We won't see a big insertion of stimulus into the economy like what we saw in 2011, 2012, 2015, 2016 in an effort to really deliver a big growth surprise out of China. And so that's a kind of different place than the global economy has been versus kind of past moments where there have been these kind of slowdowns that we then come out of. And I think it's part of the reason why, to go back to the themes, we talk about growth edging up, not growth rebounding. The fact that China is not going to be putting a lot of stimulus into the system means that the ability of the global economy to come back and move towards trend or a little higher is real. But the upside of it is capped precisely because China doesn't want to flood the system with stimulus like they have in the past. So, Mike, you've mentioned a number of interesting things. And if you had to sum it all together, what's the thing that you think the markets are paying too much attention to? And then what's the thing that they're not paying enough attention to? You know, perhaps surprisingly, given what we talked about a little bit ago, is I do think at some level there's a little bit too much focus on the U.S. election as a big risk event in 2020. I mean, like I said, I do think that we see it as a headwind that's going to impact U.S. equity market performance across the course of the year. But I think that we're also seeing a lot of noise both in the political system and in the market commentary around just how big an event this is likely to be. And, you know, I think in reality, the U.S. economy looks quite resilient at this stage. That will ultimately flow through to the kind of strength and resilience of the U.S. equity market. In terms of what's not hyped enough, I think that EM, emerging markets, are under-discussed. You know, we talk about policy being on pause. I think the one place where that's not likely to be true is around emerging market central banks, where a number of EM central banks outside of China are likely to continue cutting across the course of 2020. And I think that backdrop of central banks cutting rates plus growth edging higher on a global basis is a pretty attractive backdrop, certainly for emerging market debt, but probably also for emerging market equities as well. And Mike, you have an impressive background. I alluded to the fact that you worked in Washington, D.C. You spent some time in the White House. You came to BlackRock. And earlier this year, you became the global chief investment strategist. So tell us more about that role and what it entails and what your day-to-day looks like. At some level, you know, my job in my old life was to get up every day and try to figure out the global economy. And my job today is to try to get up every day and figure out the global economy, which is kind of what I enjoy doing. In the past, it was about helping advise the president and the senior team about how to chart a course of policy that kind of would navigate through what we saw out there in the global economic environment. 
I find just tremendous satisfaction in much the same way talking to our clients day in and day out. I mean, whether they're individual retirees or pensions or life insurers and helping them kind of think through how to navigate a difficult world to make the decisions for them that's going to get them where they want to go, that feels very purposeful. And so that's a really cool thing about what I get to do. I hope we all can have the same passion in our job that you have in yours. So Mike, We usually end these podcasts with a rapid-fire round. Since it's the new year, we're going to talk about New Year's resolutions. You tell me which one you think is more likely. Are you ready? Yes, bring it. Okay. More likely to sign up for a gym membership or cook at home every day? I would say I am more likely, probably not a gym membership, but more likely a yoga membership the coming year would make my family very happy with me. And that will give you a lot of time to have clear thoughts on on the market and the global economy. Would you spend less time on your cell phone or spend less time on Netflix? I would, in fact, spend more time on Netflix and way less time on my cell phone. You're more likely to drink less coffee or less carbonated beverages? The fact of the matter is I'm likely to continue consuming a lot of both. But I would say maybe hopefully a little less coffee. And the last one here, are you more likely to read more books or listen to more podcasts? Recognizing the danger of this answer, I'm going to say that I really hope that I read more books in 2020. Twitter has destroyed my attention span, and I need to rebuild it. My hope for 2020 is that books are going to be a key part of the strategy for rebuilding my attention span. All right. Well, we appreciate your candor, but you're no longer invited back to the Bid Podcast. I'm just kidding. Thanks, Mike, for joining us today. We look forward to seeing how your outlook pans out in 2020. Thank you for having me. Fantastic to talk. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N 2DL, telephone plus 44020. 7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited. 
and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523. BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell, or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com. mx Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.